Hi, Risto Martin in here. Uh, welcome to another episode of Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education podcast. Uh, today's episode is with Dr. Justin O'Connor, who is a senior lecturer at Monash University, which is in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Dylan and I had a great discussion with him and welcomed him as the first Australian university representative on our podcast. Uh, Justin talked to us about informal sport participation, and we break this down in his article. Justin also has research experience that utilizes systems thinking, social, social ecology, and strengths-based approaches in health and physical education. He also has an interest in social justice within education. And I first heard about Justin through my friend Nate Babcock, and um, then we ended up sitting together randomly at a dinner at ASEP in Scotland this summer. So I'm really happy that this has come full circle and we can chat about some of his work. So here's Justin breaking down the article with us. So Dylan and I are here with Dr. Justin O'Connor from Monash University, uh, and Dylan is in Maryland, and I'm in Virginia, and Justin is in Melbourne, Australia, but uh, we'll be discussing an article that he co-authored and was recently published in the International Journal of Sport Policy and Politics. So yes, uh, we're taking our podcast into the world of politics and policy. Uh, the article is titled Managing Informal Sport Participation tensions and opportunities and it's open access so you can read it for free uh, this was a really interesting read for both dylan and i and we're really happy to have justin on with us so uh welcome thanks very much um yeah i'm excited to be here and talk to you about this paper that uh i was able to do with my co-authors ruth jeans dawn penny ramon sparge from uh, monash ecu and vic uni um and yeah we think this is a, an important i guess phenomenon that we're we're taking or paying more attention to over here. We think it's got some implications for how people engage with movement um, more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it was a really interesting topic. And so can you just start off, give us a brief background about how you got into this research and why are you interested in informal sport? Yes. So 12, it would be about yeah, 12 years ago now, I was a president of a cycling club and we held um, weekly races and we had a committee and we called volunteers and we did risk management and we set up a, a, a race event on the roads and on a typical sort of weekend we might have got around 20 to 30 sort of people turn up to do this race um, a lot of time and energy and effort went into that and then uh, the following day there'd be 50 to 60 cyclists turn up on the corner of a road and just go out and do their own sort of training thing and and as you know in essence that was basically a uh, what we did the day before, but they were doing it in their own terms, on their own time, they'd have a coffee afterwards, etc. And so I was quite interested to 
um, know why these people were not affiliating with the club and why they were just doing their own thing on the weekend. So we got some money, did some research and found out that it wasn't unique to our club, but it was happening across the state. And um, essentially, we were observing this kind of, uh, I guess, decline of club sport and the rise of informal sport before our eyes in our own experience in our own clubs. And so since then, I've been really interested in um, this sort of emerging phenomena that that people are sort of shunning and, and moving away from structured organized club sport to doing their own thing and i think it's got implications for how we uh, think about sort of sport and physical education more broadly so then can you give us an overview of the australian sports system because i know that is a little bit different of how maybe the u.s or other countries work so to give us a little bit of a context Yes, so in Australia, participation in sport, in organised sport, um, happens outside of the school or the college system. So it doesn't happen, with the exception of some private school sporting organisations, it largely happens in the community. Um, It's funded by various levels of government, so state and federal government sort of put money into it. And then we have the sporting organisations at the state level and the national level. Um, So so sports like cricket um, or soccer would have a national sort of body that then coordinates state level participation. It's highly centralized. Um, It has sort of a range of different organizations feeding into it. Local government, the local sort of councils control um, sort of the land and access to facilities. And uh, it's still very much um, male dominated in, in the competition side, particularly once you get past the age of, you know, 10 or 11, 12. Uh, and it has a sort of a focus on performance. So the, the pyramid structure, grassroots feeds into higher levels of competition. Got it. So how do you and your co-authors define uh, informal sport? And what do we know about the research that kind of led up to what you were doing here? Um, yeah, so we take a fairly loose <laughs> definition. There's no, there's no really strong way to define informal sport. Um, probably best to talk about what it isn't and that is people don't pay memberships they don't belong to a committee they don't sort of uh, they're not committed weekly to turn up uh, excuse the train um so essentially it's people self-organizing their own participation through an opt-in opt-out uh, approach they um they participate in sports we recognize uh things like you know basketball cricket um they do activities that are sort of you know regular but they're not committed to those. They're not paying fees. They're not um, joining the club, so to speak. Um, we kind of observe this. Um, we see it in, in our parks on the weekend. We see groups playing cricket. Um, we see people appropriating school grounds, uh, basketball courts, soccer facilities, playing their own, own versions of those games. Um, cyclists on roads, um, racing towards a coffee shop, for example. Um, stand-up paddleboarders, open water swimmers, uh, bunches of runners heading off in groups early morning. So all of these things we kind of sort of throw into this mix. And uh, you could even extend it to, you know, uh, things like parkour or yoga, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess the research um, that, that's emerging around this is is um, we're noticing a shift in the way people engage in, in sport. Um, there is a move away from traditional formal organized sport. In Australia, the prediction is that participation in formal sport will drop by 15% in the next 15 years, Um, primarily because we're busy and we're time poor and we need to fit the sport in and around our our sort of fluid lifestyles and our, um, 
you know, our need to have that sort of sort of option to pull out when we need to, but jump back in when we can. Um, and we think that, you know, the way it's sort of heading, um, many, many more people are going to pursue informal avenues for sport participation. If you think of, um, I've got some statistics here. So in the, in the year 2000, 125,000 people completed a half marathon. In the US, 15 years later, 2 million people have completed a half marathon. So wow. the numbers of people engaging in this informal activity is growing exponentially. Um, I think there's been a thousand percent increase in 15 years in the number of ultra marathon events that have been advertised globally. So uh, whilst that's happening, um, it's getting less competitive. So the, the times of those marathons that people are running have gotten worse over the last 15 years. So they're not necessarily doing it to be more competitive or, or you know, to get faster and, and, and better. They're doing it because they want to participate. The fastest growth area in, in marathon running is, is the greater than four hour group. So um, this is a kind of phenomenon that I think is playing out globally. And because of the fluidity of, and the modernization of society, we're, we're now pushing into these fluid um, forms of participation that traditional structures just can't meet. So when we're thinking about that uh, in the background that you just gave, um, especially uh, in relation to how informal sport is in relation to local agencies, state agencies, and these formalized structures. What was your goal of this study? What was the purpose for you to find out here? Yeah, so so because um, we're seeing this decline in formal structured sport, we were quite interested to see how well was this informal um, sport being uh, catered for, picked up within this policy context. So how were if this is a new way for people to participate, if this was a new way for people to engage and it was becoming increasingly more popular whilst traditional sports were declining, how um, how were people accounting for this and accommodating this and enabling people to engage in essentially the same sorts of physical activities that had the same health benefits and the same social outcomes, but just in a different way. And so we wanted to see um, if and how this was being supported at the government um, sort of level. And so how did you go about actually researching this? What were the steps or the methods that you took? Yeah, so we kind of used a snowball sample. We knew of people who knew people, um, and particularly at the local government level. Um, there are groups, that are sort of development officers in sport organizations, as well as local government have um, people who are responsible for integrating community and setting up sort of um, newly arrived communities to engage and those sorts of things. So we went and asked them and they told us about groups and people. And so we used a snowballing sampling method and we basically just ran a bunch of interviews with those people and asked them a bunch of questions about it. Right, so in, in those interviews, you found that some of those stakeholders shared some of the benefits to informal sport. Uh, can you give us some examples of what those benefits might be? Yeah, overwhelmingly, um, it's a point of social connection. So this was less about competition and ladders and, and winning trophies and, and you know um, becoming elite. It was much more about this point of social connection. So people could come together, generate a sense of belonging. Um, they sort of uh, got to meet people on a regular basis in a healthy activity. And that was this kind of regular, consistent opportunity to participate and engage that wasn't bound up in kind of traditional hierarchies and, and performativity. And I think that was probably the biggest and most important outcome for these people. Great. And 
when I was reading this, I had all these light bulbs go off, kind of thinking, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And so one of the things that you said was uh, that you found that informal sport really provided opportunities for culturally diverse and low socioeconomic communities. Uh, and that was really interesting to me. Can you speak more of how that informal sport played a role in those communities? Yeah, so uh, when you when you take away the formal structures, like when you when you have a group of people who um, don't necessarily fit into those formal structures, so you take away the uniform, you get rid of the fees. Um, it costs, I think, it cost my son four hundred and fifty dollars to play soccer uh, mm. last year. That's one season of soccer. Um, so two kids, that's nine hundred dollars. So you can see that the fees become quite prohibitive for formal in a formal context. Um, you take away the need to, to volunteer, to be on a committee, to do risk management. Um, all that stuff kind of puts barriers in front of those people who are least able to, to overcome them. And, and so it's not surprising that if you remove a lot of those barriers, then marginalized groups are able to mobilize themselves and gain access um, through various communication forms. You know, they might organize around social media or they might organize around family groups, but they can start to begin to um, in some cases, appropriate space, go and take over a, a physical space and then run their own version at very low cost and not have to fit into traditional club um, norms like cultures of drinking or binge drinking or gambling or um, having um, barbecues or whatever it is that, that tends to put um, some of those uh, marginalised groups off. So this was an avenue where they could go and participate and engage and play and not necessarily have to um, conform to historical or existing structures and if you look at one of these subsets of that result was that these clubs that were you know sometimes conflicting with you know the informal groups using their space and they were angry at that but then they also looked at this low socioeconomic or maybe an immigrant group that was coming in as counting towards their participation numbers and they even looked at them as like this new emerging market. Can you kind of speak to that of how yeah, that Yeah, so out? Some, some sporting organizations are oversubscribed. They've got plenty of members and they don't really want any more. They're like, it's too hard to get them to find a space for them to play. So they, in many ways, they actively discourage people from joining their, their organization because there's just nowhere to put them. There's no, and nobody wants to have to, you know, volunteer their time to spend to engage them and to pull them in and to make them feel comfortable so it's it's much easier to put the fees up and exclude more people whereas other sports that may be more marginal and, and haven't got the, the membership because remember funding in australia is is tied to memberships so the more members you have in your sporting organization the more money you make so for those sports that were struggling for numbers this was seen as an opportunity to get more people into their sport. And so they wanted to really focus on transitioning them in by setting up these kind of uh, parallel memberships or social memberships or, or ways they could start to pull them into the mainstream. Um, and so there was this interesting tension. On the one hand, some, some groups saw these people as a, a threat and they were using our space and our facilities and we don't want them there. And others were saying, well, maybe we could get them involved and then we'll pull them slowly into our structures and get them to account for our, our sort of our numbers. 
So you speak specifically about a culture change that's necessary, and um, that culture or attitude change is toward informal sport within more formalized sporting sectors. So can you tell us more what you think needs to change? What's the cultural change necessary? Yeah, I think I think the problem at the moment is the way or the, the solution that's being proposed um, for how this is, is sort of managed is to try and make these people become formalised. So take the informal groups and then formalise them. And um, that, that really kind of doesn't work on many levels because the reasons they don't want to be formalised still exist. So you don't, you don't change anything by making them members. Um, and so this kind of policy at the moment is to, is to transition them into mainstream sports where it's highly competitive and all those other problems I mentioned kind of still exist. We think there needs to be a shift in the way we think about or define sport to, to change um, the attitude within those who provide facilities and resources to recognise this as a legitimate form of participation and to embrace it and to then uh, enable structures to exist that allows it to happen. Um, because at the end of the day, it is social connection. It is doing um, the work of health kind of policy. It is engaging communities in community building um, activities. And so, you know, the benefits of that sort of, I would think, outweigh the costs of, of sort of providing facilities or resources for that. And I think they can coexist, but I don't think it's about one subsuming the other uh, and pulling it in. Yeah, so there are definitely some tensions between the formalized sector and the uh, informal sport. And you mentioned a collaborative approach could ease those tensions. Can you tell us more what you're talking about here? What is the tension and what can a collaborative approach do to kind of make it easier? Yeah, so if we, I mean, one of the examples we found was in local government, you have these um, people who are, who are employed to go and kick people off um, pitches and ovals and facilities because they're not supposed to be there and at the same time in the same organization you've got people who are employed to engage people in community sport and and health and well-being activities and so they're trying to encourage people to come together and participate and and play sports so even within the one organization you have two groups of people who are employed to do the opposite thing and so that that's not what we would think of as this kind of joined up thinking and, and it's not overly helpful in working towards a solution. So we saw the need for, um, you know, we, we could recognize, we could quite easily find these people who understood both the demands of the sporting organization, the formal sporting organizations, as well as the need to support these informal groups to come together. And we saw those acting as what we call boundary spanners who could bridge and have the, um, the expertise that sat across both areas and could act at that local government level to facilitate both groups to coexist. And it mm. also might be a matter of shifting some, um, you know, technology, tweaking some changes. It was interesting that in order for people to book a facility, they had to have, you know, $100 million worth of professional indemnity insurance, which is not going to happen when you're a family just wanting to play a game of sport. So yeah. the requirement to book space was um, instantly a problem. So we think there's a there's a range of sort of um, not overly complex solutions to some of these problems that could enable more people to engage in physical activity more often um, in ways that won't necessarily, um, you know, disrupt or destabilize formal participation. So you sort of talked about some of those barriers, either structural or non-structural, people fighting over space, things like that. So. If we were to eliminate these barriers, what do you think the potential would be of informal sport? 
Oh uh, yeah, I, I, look, I think it's um, I think it's got huge potential, and I think um, for the main reason that once you take if you take competition out of it, that lat you know ladders matter and, and fitness matters and skill really matters, then people can engage in um, in movement in ways that meet their needs at their level. You know, it's it's a bit more like differentiating um, sport. You you have more options for more people to engage, and you might find that the groups that do do engage are still rather hegemonic, but but they might all be um, that might be what they need to come together as a community. They might not need to be completely diverse and open to everyone, which seems to be the policy in sport is to is to have policies that make clubs become accessible to every single person on earth, which doesn't seem to work. And it might be that these little self-organizing groups um, initially are enough to, to sort of get more and more people engaged in movement and physical activity. And it's it's a much more, it's a much less rigid and much more flexible approach to engaging people in movement than it than it is to have formal structures with systems and risk management and membership fees and, and cultures and histories and traditions and those sorts of things. So um, it's no surprise to me that um, informal participation in, in movement is booming and formal participation in movement is, is slowly constricting um, and I can see that trend continuing into the future as people self-organise and, and get their own physical activity done on their terms, in their time, in their place with the people they feel most comfortable with. I'll go in and ask what's your future direction for this work? So. We are now starting to look at um, what the implications of, of informal sport are in a physical education context. So if we're going to prepare young people for a future where they're going to have to negotiate their own sport in their own terms in their, in their own places with their own sort of um, you know, subsets of communities, how are they, what sort of the key skills, knowledge, understanding are they going to need to be able to successfully engage in that kind of participation? And I think it looks a little bit different from what we have been doing is preparing them for formal sports structures where there's an element of competition and and that seems to be the kind of, um, I guess, the, the, the determinant of whether they're going to persist in that sport or not. And to me, it takes an emphasis, not completely off, but an emphasis off having to have a you know, really in-depth understanding of tactics. So teaching games for understanding will become less about complex understandings of tactics and more about what do I just need to enter this to, to engage at an initial level and that's enough. And then I think in terms of fitness and skill, it'll be a similar thing. What kind of fitness and skill do I need to start? And then once I've started, how can I then work at a, a, a level that's comfortable for me, what works for me and how do I negotiate that with my community? And so, you know, we're thinking that that the real skills and knowledge and understanding is going to rest in this social dynamic. How do we help young people be good communicators and advocates for each other and to support each other to be able to participate in these emerging forms of sport in ways that make everyone um, feel you know, included and comfortable and welcome. And, and that kind of social negotiation, I think, is going to be absolutely crucial um, for participation, but also for health. Like, you know, if you think about what we know about social connection in health, um, that's going to be, I think, one of the roles phys ed will play is helping young people negotiate that informal participation space. Yeah, I, th I think you hit a lot of things that really struck with me. Um, 
I mean, thanks for your time. I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating insight into informal sport. And I'm, I'm sure that we're going to be hearing a lot more of this from, from your future work. Uh, I really enjoy the read. I know Dylan and I talked offline a little bit and talked about how fascinating this was. So uh, for those of the listeners that want to read the full uh, article by Dr. O'Connor and his colleagues, you can look at the podcast notes. We'll write down the citation down there. Uh, and since it's open access, you can access it uh, fairly easily. Uh, so thanks, Dylan. And thanks, Justin, for uh, coming on today. No worries.